Welcome to Navigating the Future, One Decision at a Time. I'm your host, Alex DeBrain, and in this series I'll be sharing a chapter per episode of my memoir, Escaping the Amazon, for those that would prefer to listen to it instead of reading it. Hopefully some of the decisions I made through my journey can help some of you navigate the chaos we call life. Subscribe to my podcast, follow me on Twitter at AlexTheBrain1, or subscribe to my mailing list on AlexTheBrain.com to stay up to date as I release each episode. Any comments or feedback is always welcomed and encouraged, so please drop me a mail on info at alexthebrain.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Eden. A mission once given to you becomes sacred to you. You will accomplish it to the end and at all costs. To ship us off to Guyane, I imagined that we would be packed into the back of a four-engine transal C-160, the fuselage ruggedly bare with steel benches running to the cockpit, red netting to hold onto through the turbulence. Everyone would be sitting in silence amidst the noisy turboprops, faces covered in camouflage paint. Instead, I found myself in the very modern Marseille airport waiting to board a sleek Boeing 747-300. Budget cuts, I said to Marcos. The Legion is the first to be sent and the last to be funded. Dressed in civilian clothing, with French passports in hand, we checked into our flight to South America. Hey, if you're going to desert, now's the time, Marcos added in earnest. We discovered later that someone did actually do that. A soft-spoken Bolivian herdsman ducked out to take a piss and never returned. With a wad of Legion earnings, he paid for cash for immediate flight home before anybody took a bed count. We admired him for having the brains and the balls to pull that off. It was invigorating to walk through an international airport as a legionnaire and not a civilian. With our shaved heads, tight jeans and ratty tank tops, we could have been extras in a Frankie Goes to Hollywood video. Civilians knew who we were and steered clear of us, either out of respect or fear. A boy ran up to me and asked if we were going to be sent to Afghanistan, Algeria or Chad. I'm going to the Amazon to protect your rockets. He returned a perplexed look. I posed with him for a photo, thanked him for his good wishes and walked through the passport control to board. After months of sleeping in the snow and mud, I was uncomfortable being cosy in my plush warm seat. We managed to traverse the Atlantic with no civilians beaten or flight attendants sexually assaulted. My first and most lasting impression of Guyane was the immense suffocating heat and humidity which hit me at the moment I stepped onto the tarmac. As we made our way by bus to Kuru and crossed the Cayenne River mouth, I realised that I was no longer in Kansas. I gazed across at the estuary which seemed to be swallowing the mighty Atlantic. The flat lazy beach town of Kuru felt deceptively like a holiday resort. The abundance of palm trees and people walking dozily in the streets was a pleasant welcome. Guyana is a small country nestled in the northern eastern corner of South America. Native Americans inhabited it for centuries until Columbus brought the influx of European influence and hunger for land. Subsequently, France tried several times to seize ownership of the region but failed. A hundred years after finally gaining control of the territory, France's King Louis XV sent thousands of settlers to build a colony there. The attempt was horribly unsuccessful with thousands succumbing to tropical diseases and local hostility. Those who did survive fled to a trio of tiny islands offshore. 
As a failed colony, Guyane became a naughty corner for revolutionaries, unwanted politicians, journalists or slaves that France needed to dispose of. In the mid-19th century, France passed a law that anyone with more than three convictions for theft would be sentenced to Guyane for six months. While into the 20th century, France ran the most infamous penal colony in history, Devil's Island. Opened in 1852, it was notorious for its harsh treatment towards criminals who were deported there from all parts of the French Empire. Laws required convicts to stay in Guyane after completion of the sentence for an equal span of time. If the original sentence exceeded eight years, they were forced to stay for life and were merely provided an unworkable tract of land on which to settle. A limited number of women, commonly convicted of infanticide, were also sent to Guyane with the intent that they were marry freed male inmates to aid in the development of the colony. Of course, the island also held the most hardened criminals. Prison on prison of islands was familiar and tropical diseases rife. Sanitary systems were scarce and the region was mosquito-infested. The only escape from the island prison was by water, and few convicts succeeded in doing so. The vast majority of the 80,000 prisoners sent to Devil's Island never made it back to France. Broken survivors who did retold of the horrors. They often scared other potential criminals straight. The system was gradually phased out and completely shut down in 1953. The Dreyfus Affair was a political scandal that divided France from 1894 until the resolution in 1906. Often seen as symbolic of modern anti-Semitism, it remains as a striking example of a complicated miscarriage of justice, where a crucial role was played by the press, intellectuals and public opinion. The scandal began in 1894 with the treason conviction of Captain Alfred Dreyfus, a young Jewish artillery officer. Given a life sentence for allegedly communicating military secrets to the Germans, Dreyfus was in prison on Devil's Island. Apart from the guards, he was the only inhabitant of the island and was held in a tiny stone hut. Worried by the risks of escape, the commandant of the prison was exceedingly harsh. Dreyfus became sick and shaken by fevers that gradually worsened, and an artist revolute in Paris and the publication of Zola's J'accuse finally led to Dreyfus' freedom and exoneration. Henri Papillon Charrier was convicted for murder by the French courts. He was known as the author of Papillon, a memoir of his horrifying incarceration in and death-defying escape from Guyane. After Charrier's final release in 1945, he settled in Venezuela where he married a local woman. He was subsequently treated as a minor celebrity, even being invited frequently to appear on local television programs. He finally returned to Europe, visiting Paris in conjunction with the publication of his memoir. The book sold over 1.5 million copies in France alone, and was made into a major film starring Steve McQueen. In 1964, France finally found an economic use for its colony and set up the Guyani Space Centre, which brought economic development to the population scarred by centuries of greed and bad planning. The 3rd Regiment of Infantry took garrison in Kourou in 1973. In the Legion's prisoner tradition, the regiment immediately marked the territory and blazed the route towards the east, which now links Guyane to the Brazilian frontier. The primary mission of the regiment was to secure the space centre, specifically the exterior zones for each launch. It also protected the sensitive surrounding installations for low-altitude aerial threats. 
Every Legion mission required the deployment of three combat companies. The subsequently formed Jungle Training Center in Regina is the world's premier survival and tropical warfare school. The Legion's grueling two-week advanced jungle warfare course is known to break even the US SEALs and British SAS contingents. Combat sections conduct intervention operations lasting up to several excruciating weeks. The Legion boasts of the ability to go deeper into the jungle and survive longer than the local indigenous people. The 3rd Regiment of Inventory is projected in the Caribbean South American zone as a pre-positioned operation force capable of intervening instantly. As in 2004 during Operation Carbet in Haiti, far away from the watchful eye of any human rights group. In the 2000s, the Legion pushed to thwart illegal mining and drug trafficking activities deep into the jungle. This objective became permanent and was later reinforced. Such was my lot as a ranker legionnaire. I joined the Legion to save lives and experience adventure, not to pistol whip smugglers and ensure satellite television connections for the Parisian civilians. We were indeed in God's Garden of Eden, yet I wasn't sure if France's legionnaires and rockets were the uncorrupted Adam or the serpent. Westerners are prone to glamorize man in his natural state. There is a fine line between paradise and madness, and men free from constraints of civilization became noble savages, or simply savages. I wore my uniform with pride and took on any assignment with relish and excitement, until given my first mission. A detachment was tasked with guarding the space center's perimeter before a launch. We bivacked in a small section of grass between the outside fence and the river, and continuously patrolled in shifts. Boredom set in after a week of launch delays. We killed time but joking, sleeping and drinking ourselves into a stupor. With no ammunition or real combat skills, we were a threat only to the mosquitoes. Despite the monotony, terror was never far away. While we monitored our section, a dozen men dangled their bare feet in the slimy riverbank, while the others played cards on the grass. Still others took an undeserved nap. But we let our guard down. I was trying unsuccessfully to sew a button back onto my uniform when I heard a massive splash behind me. I swung around to see a kaleidoscope of flesh, teeth, tail and arms tossing water in all directions. One of our men was in the water. It all transpired in a split second and a short distance from the shore. We were all petrified by the horrified spectacle. Not a single soul had the courage or gumption to intervene in the battle between man and beast. Before I could shout, get him out of there! Blood stained the river and all went silent. As soon as we snapped back to reality, our fellow legionnaire emerged from the water dragging out an adult caiman onto the sand. Anyone hungry? He asked, smiling ear to ear. I thought I'd met the most amazing characters on the farm. I was wrong. Every section always had one guy who went beyond the pale. We all ate reptile for lunch that day. The Legion has a patronizing maxim that legionnaires are happiest when they are working. When we weren't mopping perfectly clean floors or watering petunias in the colonel's personal garden, we battled boredom. War movies are based upon action on the battlefield, not the drudgery of garrison life. For every hour a fighter pilot spends in his $35 million jet, a hundred man-hours of maintenance, refurbishment, replacing and testing the aircraft were required. The days, weeks and months of war on, dotted with sojourns in the jungle. 
when not on missions, are dipped into a state of depression. During the Legion's conquest of the Sahara, thirst, heat and the NCO's brutality often led to violence or suicide. Legionnaires were known to bayonet a comrade for no reason, or dash out into the desert naked to be captured and tortured to death. This form of psychosis became known as having the cafard, the cockroach. Legionnaires are usually not even aware that they are suffering from it. Cafard fed into mob mentality, was contagious and led to mutiny of mass desertion. Many men who succumbed to it model legionnaires who rarely even muttered a word. The rapist in instruction couldn't have been in his right mind when he committed such a horrific act. The only cure for corrupt was whores, drink, and that one thing every depressed legionnaire prayed for, combat. Our free time at the Ray was usually spent getting drunk in the foyer. If one had the will and energy to press his uniform, he could do the same in Kuru with the locals. But alcohol was pricey in town, and an entire month's pay was often blown out in one night. Even though I was one of the more clean-cut types, I was beginning to enjoy booze more than I should have. Buddhists, yogis and Christian monks spent years mastering their minds to distort and enhance perceived reality. For us, doing so was as simple as cracking open a case or ten of Cronenberg. Alcohol either made me love the Legion or curse the day I was born. Some Legionnaires graduated to higher drugs. Commanders turned a blind eye to such activities, seeing it as medicine to stave off a revolt. Like university students on spring holiday, it was easy to engage in the uncharacteristic behaviours when one was in a new and anonymous environment. Yet I was amongst men who hadn't seen a woman for upward of six months. Away from the strictures of families, customs and European law, it was all too simple to surrender to the siren temptation of prostitution. Unlike some of my colleagues, I had a healthy attitude towards women. I was raised by strong sisters and an even stronger mother. I wasn't too tall but had a decent face not scarred by weekly punch-up with the police so I never had to try too hard to find a female affection. In any case, I believed that any intimacy had to be earned the old-fashioned way. Come on, Darkley, it's what shoulders have done since the war was invented, I was egged on. Are you saying that you prefer chatting up some illiterate woman, buying her a gift, and inviting her to a candlelit dinner in the hopes that she might be rewarded? Just get over it with, mate. Hey, knuckle-draggers. That whore you shag is somebody's daughter or mother. If you really want to help her out, buy her kids some shoes. I felt uneasy whenever the magical hour came on when the boys decided that it was time to get laid. I'd politely slip away, drink alone or catch a taxi back to the ray. On my way back one evening, just past our favourite watering hole, Las Iguanas, I saw something bobbing from behind a bush. As we drove past, I spotted a corporal from a neighbouring company with his kepi on backwards. A woman bent over in front of him and in the Cronenberg in his right hand. He took a sip and slapped the prostitute on her ass. Her face was emotionless, as if she had lost her soul decades ago and was now just a wandering piece of flesh to be exploited by legionnaires. My heart broke for her. In the light of the locals' permissive attitude towards prostitution, I wondered if these women, in some narcissistic way, preferred that life. Until very recently, the Legion ran its own brothels. They were finally disbanded, not on a feminist or human rights ground, but because the wife of the raised commander was practicing Catholic and would have none of it. 
In the 1980s, documentary narrated by Algerian irreligionaire Simon Murray included a touching conversation with a retired prostitute who stated that she owed her life to her legionnaires and longed to be buried next to them when she passed. It was easy to judge, yet I saw prostitution as an act of desperation by both parties. Sex with a prostitute was merely a proxy for power and the status for men who had neither. Historically, one district of any overseas garrison town was strictly off limits to legionnaires, under a penalty of a month's imprisonment. The mythical Vision Negra was a home to every sort of disease and vice. Prostitution in Guyana had a dark history, tinged with notes of conquest and slavery. Discerning between temptation and the intellectual curiosity was difficult. I walked through this quarter once and was taken aback at the conditions, appalling even by local standards. The main street was a narrow little alley. I could almost touch both of the walls on either side. The low houses were essentially ruins, and rough holes substituted for windows and doors. Songs, cries, and shrieks filled the air. This was the last stop, even for women from more prosperous lands. In the corner of a hovel, I faintly saw a thin and sickly blonde woman, who may in fact have been French. Legionnaires of yesteryear went on missions through the village Negra to rescue white slaves, European women who were kidnapped by Arab traffickers from French or Spanish beaches and spirited away to North Africa. By the time these women were found, they often resisted being rescued. Here, a Brazilian, in whose face her unpleasant life had cut deep lines, sat in a torn silk dress on the bare ground. She was too exhausted or high to speak and merely invited pedestrians to come inside with a wave. Near her, a local black woman with a robust figure lay stretched out almost naked. Young Colombian girls crouched next to them. In the midst of this misery moved the lower social classes of Guyane. Men who laboured mercilessly under the sun during the day spent their pay with equally destitute women. Australian Dave Mason, who served in the middle 90s, wrote about an incident he witnessed in Djibouti. He walked in on another legionnaire having sex with a local prostitute. Mason was offered to have a go with the girl, but declined. It's true, you know. If you punch them here, said the other legionnaire, whereupon he gave the girl a quick, hard punch to her side just below her ribcage. They got spasm around your dick. It wasn't too long after I arrived that I had met the great Connor. Old legionnaires either finished their contracts, committed suicide or were sent to the Nacre in France, also known as the former Nazi B&B. As such, the Ray received a fresh shipment of cannon fodder every two weeks, via the same flight on which I had arrived. One evening, I was back at Las Iguanas with my faithful bunch of drunks and perverts. At the usual time when they ventured off to donate money to impoverished women, and I was closing my tab, a group of newly minted legionnaires walked in through the door. In the centre of the pack took a fit young man who towered a head above the rest, Melville's handsome sailor. He had to duck to avoid the sputtering ceiling fan. I expected him to don a white ten-gallon hat and announce to all that he was here to clean up this town. The others sat at the bar beside him, on both sides, and seemed honoured to be in his presence. His entourage was well-behaved and immune to the company of the usual prostitutes. Curious, rather than to call it an early night, I decided to buddy up. Darkies, my name, I said as I extended my hand. 
Connor. The lofty lad responded as he rose to his feet and returned a firm, confident shake. We're all mates, join us. I put down my Cronenberg and asked what one is never supposed to ask. But it was too resistible not to. So why do you enlist in the Legion? Well, Connor said with a big toothy smile, I had a few options but wanted to do something big with my life. His intentionally vague response only made me more curious. I have no idea what you mean by that, I responded with a tinge of cynicism. Australia is a large open country, you know. It's easy to get bored, he told me with a twangy accent. There's nothing more to it, mate. I didn't press him further. Such details ooze out only when the time is right. After a few more Cronenbergs and some earned trust, I nearly connected all the dots. He had left a promising swimming career in Australia to join the gang of roughs. His dream was to one day win a medal in his country. Rumour had it that he was injured right before the Beijing Olympics and couldn't compete, which ultimately led him to the same place as me. The Legion always posted its top swimmers to the Amazon Regiment. Connor was just another of the fascinating, mysterious and often sad souls who ended up here. We very soon became close friends, not only because we spoke the same language, but because Connor was an amiable, all-round Aussie golden boy of the regiment. Even the NCOs took a liking to him. I was taken aback the first day he and I put on landscaping duty. As we painstakingly walked around, bending over, pulling weeds, everyone who passed Connor greeted him with a warm handshake. One particularly unpleasant sergeant gently approached him and sought his counsel about a woman in town. I couldn't have cared less about such trivialities, but Connor was always eager to listen, to not pass judgment. Naturally, I looked up to him as a mentor, not only because he felt like an old brother, but because he was a hulking six foot eleven. He towered above my barely five foot ten frame and most others in the regiment. He had a smile as broad as he was tall and the patience of a saint. I'll bite an angel who could push back the drinks. We spent many hours bonding over Cronenberg and dreamt about the elusive adventure that lay in the Amazon and even of our plans to start a business together if we ever made it out alive. The rainforest was a suffocating place when one used up days wandering its endless paths. On my first two-week mission along the Brazilian border, I realised how insignificant even the almighty foreign legion was in comparison to the multitude of life teeming under the calm tree canopies. The ground was permanently wet and covered with decomposing flora and roots. It was eternal night, for the sunlight was absorbed by the canopy above us. The Amazon houses a third of the world's bird life. Mammals, reptiles and insects were also in abundance. We walked past massive moss-layered tree trunks, oblivious to the fact that 50 metres overhead the leaves were producing 20% of the Earth's oxygen. On the floor of the ocean of life, in our denim combats, the stifling heat was unbearable. With a growing population and rising standards of living in the region, mining, logging and cattle ranching endangered the Amazon. But the Legion wasn't stationed there to further philanthropic environmental causes. We were there to curb illegal trafficking of drugs, gold and other contraband from Brazil. On one particular mission, we'd been blazing a path for most of the day when a bare-chested man darted from the undergrowth directly across our way, running himself into the hands of our section leaders. Our sergeant felt threatened and immediately rushed the suspect, punched him in the stomach, pulled his neck down in the tight clinch and kneed him ferociously in the face. 
The sound of his nose breaking was sickening. Blood poured from his face like wine. I was shocked by the brutality and had to restrain myself from intervening to protect him. We were then ordered to strip search the trespasser. He had small patches sewn in the midst of his pant legs. I tore them off and five irregular lumps of gold dropped to the ground. Every legionnaire underwent the same training. Depending upon how he is led, a legionnaire can be the best of soldiers or the worst of brutes. A 20th century commander was quoted as saying, it was human nature to choose the path of least resistance. In examining wartime, atrocities such as Malay massacre in Vietnam, psychologists estimate that 70% of a group would gleefully join in the carnage, 20% would simply look the other way, and only 10% would actively resist. I wondered if I were male enough to be in the latter percent. It was sickening to see this grown man whimper and cry like a child. He pleaded in a mixture of English, Portuguese and an indigenous language, but I roughly understood him. He had a family and was begging for mercy. He was unarmed, no larger than a teenage boy and looked like he hadn't had a meal in days. I wondered whether his children would eat again if he hadn't delivered the gold to his handlers. His hands were tied behind his back and he was interrogated for two days by our superiors, but it was far from over. We were ordered to cut up his shoes and burn everything he had on him. We obeyed without question. But my feet! He pleaded in tears. Even in military-issued boots, our soles were shredded after a few hours of walking in the jungle. We aimed to get him to lead us to his accomplices. These criminals never work alone, a colleague explained to me. The smuggler's face was now streaked with a mixture of dried and fresh blood and saliva, and then he finally broke and agreed to direct us to the others. Completely naked, but for the rope that held his bleeding wrists together, he guided us up the crest of the steep hill. Our lieutenant then turned to me. You stay here with him, and we'll go down. If he moves, shoot him, and then drag his body into the jungle for the animals to eat. Our hostage must have understood some French because he immediately lay down on the ground with his head in the mud and didn't twitch for the whole three hours. I joined the legion to save lives, not to take them. I wanted to learn the noble warrior trade and to live by the ethical code. I had sugar plum dreams of rescuing nuns caught in the crossfire of a civil war, enforcing peace in the midst of a tribal conflict or simply bringing food to the famished children. But now I sat in the jungle... Sweat dripping off my face with my thumbers in the back of a defenceless man's head. We were there to curb the illegal gold trade, but this man's helpless situation didn't conform to the abnormal mandates penned by the politicians. The directive to curb illicit mining was nothing more than a power play between regional powers and as a result, sick entertaining for legionnaires on the ground. I was a coward for not helping this man and for the first time wondered whether I was cut out for this line of work. I never knew what happened to the confiscated gold. When my section returned from its fruitless search, our hostage received another beating, just to teach him a lesson, before they reluctantly let him go, naked and shoeless into the brutal Amazon, his eventual fate known but to God. On our march back to the ray, while I was still in a daze of confusion and rage, we came across a small herd of cattle, a strange thing to find in the wild savage rainforest. A corporal casually handed us live rounds and ordered us to shoot them. 
No explanation was given at the time, and nobody asked. Amongst us was a group of legionnaires who had just returned from Afghanistan, bloodthirsty and trigger-happily. They gleefully volunteered to slaughter the animals. Within seconds, mayhem broke out. Shots were fired at random, one after another. The animals scattered, confused, trying to escape. They ran into tree stumps and stumbled over rocks and roots, splitting hooves and breaking bones. Rounds hit the cattle in the leg and the sides, none of the wounds fatal. The sick executioners were torturing the animals and delighting in the agony. Some cows were shot 20 times before they died. Blood spattered against the green foliage and it made the nearby creek flow red, foretelling the apocalypse. The cows moaned in a uniform aching tone. When the killing was over, the lieutenant counted the rounds that had been shot. Surely for a signed and stamped inventory report accompanied by a spreadsheet that to be delivered to the colonel. 200 rounds to kill 8 animals. I spent many days on the farm as a child. I also enjoyed a nice steak on occasion. But Pa taught us never to order meat unless we were going to eat it all. Even grizzle and bows were fed to our dogs rather than to be tossed into the bin. Animals died that humans could live and revered them for that. God may have given Adam and Eve dominion over the beasts, great and small, but they were not put on earth for our sick pleasures. Privilege came with responsibility, and now we had destroyed a year's livelihood for several families, all because these farmers were forbidden to graze their cattle on the patch of land. In my travels through southern Africa as a youth, I remembered a conversation I had with an indigenous sand bushman, I respect the game that I hunt because they are very clever. From an early age, the animals recognize man, the hairless ape that uses steel tools. They know that when they spot us, the encounter will not end well. In Devil's Guard by George R. Alfred, re-encountered his exploits as a former Nazi SS turned legionnaire in Indochina. The author writes about a conversation with a big game hunter. I hunt the most intelligent but cruelest animals of them all. Man. In a subsequent mission, my section found itself in the protected area of Saul, in the heart of Guyane. It was impenetrable even by the Amazonian standards and entirely inaccessible by any land vehicle. We had to be flown in by military plane. We were to establish a base camp there and then branch off on smaller missions on a bi-weekly basis. The Legion had expelled hundreds of other illegal miners from the area the year before and our mission was to ensure that the mines remained abandoned. Although there was a river close by, we had to painstakingly hack our way through the vegetation, foot by foot, simply to get to the site we were policing. We spent five exhausting days doing precisely that. When we arrived, we confirmed that the mines were untouched, evidenced by the overgrowth, and there was no sign that anyone had even approached the site. With that mission accomplished, we turned back and I finally lost my sense of humour. What the fuck was the point of that? I snapped at our lieutenant, throwing my rucksack on the ground. So much as eyeballing an officer in the Legion was unheard of. And in that location could have easily resulted in me being buried in a shallow, muddy grave. But after busting my ass on countless stupid missions, I didn't care. We risked our lives walking for a week getting here. We could have made it by boat in one day. A lieutenant was undoubtedly descended from a World War I general who casually sent waves of men to be slaughtered. 
noted that their strategy didn't work and then launched yet another wave. He stared at me and chose not to respond to my gross insubordination. This infuriated me even more. Instead, he leaned back onto a tree stump, lit a cigarette and smiled smugly. The boat is loud. If they heard us coming, they'd flee. Enraged, I stood up, grabbed my machete. Darkly, what the fuck? My section gasped. But I simply banged it against the closest tree. The sound ricocheted through the forest. We'd been making the sound racket for days. I threw down the machete and spat on the ground. I made my point, but I'd paid a steep price for it. I was tasked with using the same machete to clear the path for the entire detachment behind me as we forged yet another virgin trail through the Amazon. On day two, we stumbled across an anaconda. The legionnaires gathered around, staring at it as though it was an alien. It was young and must have just eaten as it was unusually docile. The creature was as long as a man is tall and his colouring still vibrant. I was fed up, tired and sure as hell not going to stand idly marvelling at a fucking reptile. I reached down to grip its mouth, tape it shut and shoved it in my rucksack. Without a word, I kept walking. Too stubborn to admit that I'd now had to lug an extra 20 kilograms through the bush. Two days later, my section prepared a special dinner and my load was 20 kilograms lighter. We sat around a campfire and one pot to which we had the copious amounts of rum, which the closest alcoholics carried in their canteens instead of water. The Asians and our miss cooked a batch of stucky rice and served our meal with them banana leaves. We ate with our hands and enjoyed knowing each other on a deeper level. Like a fine Bordeaux, the snake tasted like the surrounding jungle terrier, fishy in texture with a luxurious finish. The vertebra makes up most of the reptile, made it difficult to eat as we had to pick the meat out from between the bones. Despite the stupidity and the drudgery, moments like that mitigated my contempt for the lesion. It was what it was. Our commander knew our minds better than we did, and with the whiff of mutiny in the air we were given a new task. We marched with a relatively large section, many of whom were newly arrived Junes. The atmosphere was thick as we descended a steep slope that led to the river below. The bush was so dense we couldn't see more than a few meters ahead, but it thinned out as we approached the bank, and then suddenly we heard voices in Portuguese. We all immediately assumed the same thing, Brazilian smugglers. Our sergeant stopped dead in his tracks, turned around and hand signaled us to take cover. We crouched down in the bushes awaiting further instructions. Without muttering a word, he divided us into two groups and communicated that we were to lock in the infiltrators from either side down in the riverbed. As we slowly approached the voices, I was careful not to slip on the muddy ground and give away our position. I risked dropping my fumma since I had only one sweaty hand with which to grasp it. My free arm was the appendage that kept me from falling tits over toe into the mire clay. Suddenly, one of the dunes, unable to contain himself any longer, ran towards the suspect, screaming like a banshee. He wanted desperately to put to use what he had learned from Rambo films and wasn't going to miss his opportunity. The Brazilians took flight upon hearing the howl from an unknown Amazonian beast. We now had no other option but to engage in hot pursuit. We were loaded with gear and I clomped along as fast as I could when I reached level ground. 
Like the gingerbread man, the three Brazilians flew over fallen trees with animal-like agility and split into different directions. The corporal leading my group chose to trail the smuggler who'd headed upstream along the river. I followed, jumping over roots and ducking under low-hanging branches. The Brazilian changed course and sailed over the broad streams. The corporal, without thinking, jumped across the same brook, but his pack was too heavy and he underestimated the span. In mid-air, he dropped like a rock, face first into the muck. I had only one thing on my mind, don't let him get away. Without stopping, I charged across the stream, using the corporal as a stepping stone. He never forgave me for that one. My chest burned, but adrenaline kept me going until we reached a second, even wider creek. Now I understood why the legions test for the rucksack run. Again, the Brazilian cleared it like an Olympic long jumper. I followed diligently with the, of course, you're my boy spirit. When I approached the stream, I thought back to the time I had easily leaped out of the sandpit in school. But hubris got the best of me, and it was my turn to fall face first in the mud on the water's edge. I was stuck, and the chase was over. My struggle to get out of the mire only sucked me in deeper. It took five minutes and all of my strength to finally pull myself free. I had new, hard-earned respect for quicksand. Caked in grime, I made a curiously search for the area. I expected the Brazilian to be long gone by then. I walked upstream for a few metres in the same direction I'd been running. When I came around a bush, I suddenly found a shotgun pointing at my nose. It was so close that I could smell the distinct anti-corrosion oil. The bloke holding the weapon had a trembling finger on the trigger. Fuck. In a reflex response, I immediately pulled up my thumbs and held it to his forehead. I shouted in French, trying to intimidate him. I was bluffing. There were no rounds in my rifle. The rules of engagement in Guyane forbade carrying loaded weapons in the peace zone. Live rounds were available, but we could shoot only when shot at. I initially agreed with the rules logic, but staring down the barrel of a loaded shotgun with nothing but an expensive fiberglass and steel club in the hands of a quickly changed my opinion. We stood there, guns face to face, screaming in languages that neither understood. He could have easily killed me, and I knew it. Like a deadly punch in Judy so, we both shouted at each other to drop his weapon. Eventually, my corporal, who had temporarily forgotten about my earlier disrespectful act, had an, and another legionnaire heard my yelling and showed up next to me with their rifles pointing the young Brazilian's head. Now we had three unloaded weapons directed at him. A few more tense moments followed. His eyes pierced mine. His finger grazed the trigger. After weighing up his options, he finally dropped his weapon. Thanks be to God, as I didn't want anybody to get hurt or for me to be flown back to France without a head. I feigned bravado amongst my peers, boasting that I knew exactly how things would play out and that I was all in the day's work. The remaining members of the section somehow caught the other two accomplices and bound them together. Even legionnaires not involved in the chase were gloating, but it was not within our code honour to humiliate the enemy when he's down. Our sergeant tried questioning the smugglers, but couldn't understand a word they said. Nobody in our section spoke Portuguese. The principle of probable cause was best left to stuffy law school's lecture halls. It never occurred to anybody before we charged with weapon blazing that the suspects might have merely been local fishermen minding their own business. The Soviet secret police chief coined the applicable term, 
You bring me the man and I'll find you the crime. We ignored any search and seizure protocol, raided their bags and found nothing of significance. Yet we weren't about to let prickly things like facts interfere with satisfying our adrenaline-filled sadism. We then ordered the detainees to strip down to the underpants. We threw all their belongings, clothes, shoes, food and wallets into a heap between two trees and set it alight. We stood and watched the three young Brazilians sob as they saw everything they owned go up in flames. There was no tribunal and no legal recourse for those wronged men. But the wrath of Paris would fall on any local who was so much looked at a French tourist the wrong way. When everything was burned to ashes, we simply walked away. I hesitated to look back. The sight of their slumped naked bodies made me weep. Again, I didn't stand up for them, nor did I protest. For those poor souls, it was a seven-day walk to the nearest outpost. If they were lucky... The jungle was deadly, even for trained troops with equipment, clean water and tin provisions. I never knew if they made it out of the Amazon alive. It wasn't long before I saw the sad face of Carford, a company from the 2nd Regiment Etrangere Infantry, headquartered in French postcard town of Nîmes, joined us on our fourth month's convent. It was standard for our regiment to have a standby two permanent combat companies and one rotating contingent from the mainland. Being a legionnaire with no rank, the purpose of our missions were never communicated to us. We just went where the legion needed us. My company was tasked with relieving the 2nd Regiment, who was manning a remote post in the rainforest. We planned to bivouac alongside them before they departed the following morning back to Kuru. When we arrived at camp, the morale was noticeably lower than expected, considering that they were about to return to La Belle Europe. Being snatched abruptly from province and dumped into the jungle for four months, we clearly saw that the experience had taken an enormous toll on them. The men sulked and talked little. They merely sat around, shaved in the river, washed their clothes and rolled drum-brand cigarettes. There was breakdown in leadership and nobody seemed to be in charge. We felt like the supply party arriving years late at the lost English colony over an oak. We sensed something tragic had happened, but couldn't figure out what. As dark approached, the 2nd Regiment organised the usual sentry schedule for the night. June Legionnaires rotated on a two-hour shift and patrolled the surrounding areas. The evening was unbearably humid, as usual, but uncharacteristically cool. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. A new sentinel was sent out at midnight. My section was wrapping up their conversations and settling into the hammocks for the night. But for some reason my soul rested heavily in my chest and I couldn't get to sleep. Only moments later, loud shots reverberated through the thick air. Everyone in shower sandals and underpants immediately grabbed their thumbs and jumped into action. We ran down the hill into the direction from which the shots had come. Halfway there, in a small clearing illuminated by the moon, we saw the sentry standing silently, still with his thumbs by his side. We didn't know if he was shooting at food, fired the initial rounds as a warning, or if we'd just been drawn into an ambush. As soon as we made eye contact with him and before anyone could even register what was happening, he placed his thumbs barrel into his mouth and pulled the trigger. His eyes widened and the back of his skull erupted into a spray of blood and flesh. He dropped ungracefully to the ground. 
Everybody stood motionless, like his limp body in shock. I stared at him lying on the ground, his eyes still open and filled with horror. Without asking, I understood all too well what pains led this young man to take his life. For the death of his stepson of France, his coffin would be dragged by the tricolour he swore to defend and perhaps that of his home country. The body of this boy, who never existed, if unclaimed, might be buried near the regiment, or in a sleepy forgotten plot in France under the name given by the Legion. All life is a gift, and not to be discarded, yet suicide is never a simpler matter. On September 11, 2001, I watched office workers jump from the flaming Twin Towers in New York City. I couldn't reconcile whether the reaction of suicide was simply or desperate attempt to escape the excruciating pain. I wondered if this poor legionnaire's spirit would be left to wander the jungle, searching in vain for a section, or to seek justice and redemption. Thank <laughs> you.